about a month and a half ago, a farmer offered me some apples. When I say apples, I mean apples. Like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pounds of apples. So I went out with my trailer. I think I probably got maybe 3,000 pounds of apples. And I ate every last one. No, I didn't. I gave many away. I fed them to my animals. But as I was looking at these big apple crates, you know, the majority of them, 99.9% .9 of them were great. But every once in a while, you, you found this really mushy, yucky, gucky, disgusting, hairy, molded apple in the middle of the bunch. And perhaps you've heard the saying, one bad apple spoils the whole barrel. It's actually true. I looked this up. There's, when apples rot, they produce something called ethylene. And when they produce ethylene, they can start to cause decay to the, the apples around them. So as I was rooting through these apples, feeding them to my animals, eating them, giving them away, whenever I found a rotten one, I would quickly throw it out. Because I knew that if I didn't, it would contaminate more of the apples in these big barrels that I had uh, received. And I want to use that as an illustration to remind us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as one bad apple can spoil the whole barrel, so bad theology, one bad belief, one misunderstanding about the gospel of Jesus Christ can take us off mission and can actually destroy and ruin and poison and infect the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. From the very first century of the church, the church had to contend for the gospel. They had to keep their antennas up, their eyes open, their ears peeled. They had to listen carefully to make sure that nothing would hinder the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, now we have 2,000 years of division and heresy and false teaching. So how much more do we have to be on guard as a Christian church, as a Christian community, against the contamination of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be on the lookout for bad apple theology, in other words. Lest it spoil our mission and our message. So join me in Acts chapter 15. They had this situation arise then, and their response to it is informative. The way they responded should reflect the way we respond when we hear the gospel being tampered with, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is being spoiled with false teaching. So, you know, up till now in Acts, they're all over the place. They're going from one location to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. They're preaching the gospel. God is using them to win Gentiles to Christ, Jews to Christ. It's a wonderful time to be alive. But there were also challenges. There was persecution. There would be shipwrecks. There were prison sentences, all sorts of things the devil was working overtime to try to hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this particular instance, in this narrative, the, the hindrance, the wrench he's wanting to throw into the gears is bad theology. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. This is what they were teaching. This is a summary in one sentence of their false doctrine. Unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, of all the things, of all the bad things you could teach, you could be wrong about a lot of things, and it doesn't really matter that much. It's not like souls are going to be lost. You could have a little 
corruption in your baptismal theology or your Eucharistic theology or your ecclesiology. But this is a class A felony. This is a class A felony. They were saying circumcision was necessary in order to get to heaven. Now, circumcision wasn't considered a bad thing. It was the sign and seal of being under the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant in particular. But we're never told in the Word of God, and in no covenant are we told in the Word of God, that circumcision is the means of salvation. But this is the false doctrine that was being promulgated in the early church. Now, we aren't told about their level of sincerity. I mean, they believed it. Maybe they were really winsome. Maybe they were serious. Maybe they were really earnest about their message. Maybe they were absolutely convinced of it. Think, well, I should give them a pass. They weren't being mean. They were just mildly mistaken. No, motive doesn't matter. The message does in this particular situation. They, they could have been well motivated. They could have been sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. And so Paul and Barnabas, who were going about ministering the gospel to the Gentiles, hear about this, and they immediately engage in debate with these false teachers. And after Paul and Barnabas had no little dissension and debate with them, which is a, a way of saying they had a lot of discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they convene a church council. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So they're on this mission. They got to, they got to travel all the way back to Jerusalem. They got to collect all the influencers up and they got to debate and discuss this false teaching, but they don't waste the journey on the journey. They're testifying. They're talking about God's grace. They're, they're witnessing to God's miracles and saving and healing the Gentiles. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But again, they have the same problem. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So now we have two situations of the same ilk that are cause for concern. Paul and Barnabas up to this point had had many run-ins with people, debates, disagreements, but this was of a whole new category. In fact, it was potentially so dangerous that they feel it's necessary to collect up all the highest ranking influencers in the early Christian movement and make sure that everyone's on the same page. This wasn't something for them to just deal with off in Samaria. This was so important that they needed everyone to weigh in on this matter, to make sure that one part of the church wasn't moving in one direction and another part of the church wasn't moving in another direction. Now, we know that throughout the history of Christianity, especially in the second, third, and fourth centuries, the Christian church convened many councils and they wrote out creeds because for many centuries, for many generations, people would come and they would start teaching falsehoods. 
Many of the early councils that the church had were dealing with what we call Christological heresies, heresies pertaining to the person, the nature of Jesus Christ. And so they'd have to, everybody'd have to travel. They'd have to spend a lot of time. Some of these councils took place over many, many years where there was multiple meetings and they would finally end up with a creed that would clarify the nature of God or the nature of the gospel or the nature of Christ. And unfortunately, unfortunately, if we're going to be faithful in our own generation, we can't just always be proactive. We also need to be reactive. Sometimes we have to react. Sometimes we have to step away from frontline evangelism to deal with falsehood and he, uh, heresy behind, behind the scenes, lest it pollute the whole church. Again, I want to emphasize that on their way back to Jerusalem, we see their evangelistic heart. They take advantage of every opportunity to tell Jewish Christians about what God was doing among Gentile Christians. You notice this is a big theme in Acts from the time that Peter met Cornelius, from the time that the Ethiopian eunuch was converted. There's this, there's this ongoing theme of God converting Gentiles. And to our ears, that's normal. But in the first century, this was a new thing. So time and time again, there's account after account of God reaching beyond the normal walls, the Jewish walls within which God's people had lived and experienced God's revelation. Now we see God bringing the gospel, bringing the revelation of himself to literally to the world in fulfillment of the Great Commission. So upon arrival, the debate continues. And it's important for us to understand as we're about to read what we're going to read, that their response to it wasn't an attempt. This is a, a misnomer in much of the modern church. Paul and Barnabas's, Barnabas's response to their imposition of Mosaic law upon new converts wasn't to say that the Mosaic law is bad. We should just throw it all out. We should just take Genesis through Malachi, the first 39 books of the Bible, and just put it through a paper cutter and throw the Old Testament out. Many modern Christians have this mindset that the Old Testament is irrelevant, that laws don't matter, that I can do whatever I want. It's all, all about grace. And this is, this is not true. This is a falsehood, in fact. So there are rules for us to live by. Much of the Mosaic law is a reflection of creational law and still applies to the to ethics, the ethical choices we make today. But it's really important for us to understand that no law in any era brings about salvation. Under the old covenant, they weren't saved by obeying the law. Maybe sometimes you hear Christians say, oh, that was the age of the law and this is the age of grace. No, no, that's not true. That's falsehood. God has always had laws that he has put in place to govern our behavior. And we've always been saved by grace. Always been saved by God's grace. So there's always been room for grace and law throughout all of time. But you need to put it in the right categories. We're always saved. We're always justified by grace. And there's a place for law. But when law becomes the means of salvation, then we're like, eh, that is false, and we have to address that head on. So we could say that what we're seeing here is the cosmic debate. 
It's, it's the fundamental issue that's been going on since the beginning of time. How do I inherit eternal life? And there's two fundamental answers that human beings have come up with to this question. It's either by grace alone or by grace plus, 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 plus. And the plus, plus, pluses are always in the form of works or Mosaic law or Islamic law or, boot, or the teachings of Buddha or whatever it might be. There's two fundamental pathways to heaven to make it super simple. We're either saved by grace, we're either made right before God by grace, or we have to do something to inherit it, to contribute to it. And any sort of grace plus gospel is false. This is a debate that didn't end in the first century. Remember the Protestant Reformation? You might think, well, that was a long time ago. Well, you're right, it was 500 years ago. But it was... 1,450 years after this event. 1,450 years after. So over 14 centuries later, there were still people that were teaching grace plus. Grace plus indulgences. Grace plus catechism. Grace plus baptism. Whatever it might be. Here was grace plus circumcision. So there are some key truths that need to be embraced to mitigate against grace plus theology. And the first one is, all through the book of Acts, being reminded that the gospel is for all people. That doesn't mean all people are going to be saved. But the gospel doesn't discriminate. In other words, you don't have to be born into the right ethnic heritage in order to be a recipient of God's grace. You don't have to be Jewish. If you're Jewish, that's totally fine but you don't have to be Jewish. You can also be a Gentile and be saved. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there was much debate, Peter stood up. It's significant that Peter's the first to speak because he's kind of like the first guy that has those frontline encounters with the Gentile converts. Remember how uncomfortable he felt? When he was first asked to go to the Roman centurion's house and share the gospels, like, I'm a Jew, man. I don't interact with Gentiles, but God had said, you need to go. So it's significant that we see this heart change, this change of mindset in Peter. All the stigma, all the discrimination he had grown up with, he'd cast aside. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believed. Remember the stories? Remember, remember, uh, remember Cornelius? Do you remember that? He's reminding them of it. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. So we have, I guess you could say, the, the, the Jewish Pentecost in Acts 2. And then we have various Gentile Pentecosts later on through Acts, where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon Gentile believers, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by what? What's the next word? Faith. Not by works, but by faith. How did God cleanse their hearts? By works? By becoming Jewish? No. By faith. So this is emphasized in the text. And we need to emphasize it again. You weren't saved because you're in the right place at the right time because you're an extra nice person, because you were raised in the right church. God may have used your parents 
your circumstances to graciously save you. We don't deny that. But you're not saved because of who you are. It's all based upon God's grace. So there's, how much room is there in the Christian life for arrogance? Zero. How much room is there in the Christian life for us to take credit for our salvation? Zero. There's no room for it because it's all by grace. Secondly, no one can be saved or ever was. No one can be saved or ever was by works. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our father. So who is he referring to? He's Jewish. He's referring to his Jewish forebears. That neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. In other words, hey guys, remember all those laws that we ourselves were never able to measure up to? What's the message he's trying to communicate? We were were never able to be saved by works as Jews. So why do we think that the Gentiles can be saved by works? So there you have the correction, just in case you think that back in the old covenant, they were saved by obedience to the law. No, they weren't. The laws that God had given to them were in part to help with a properly ordered society. There were benefits to those laws. They were ordered to keep them. But the laws also revealed their inadequacy. It has like a double, it's like a double pronged purpose of a law. We're pro-law because it provides for order and relationships among the people of God and families and society. Obviously, we're like, yeah, don't murder people. That's a good law. Don't bear false witness in court. These are good laws. We're not, ah, those don't apply anymore. No, they're, they're good laws. But no one can perfectly measure up to them all. The Jews didn't and the Gentiles can't. So Peter's reminding them of this stark reality. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. So it's one gospel for everybody. It's not two different paths to heaven. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, laws are good, but you can never perfectly fulfill them. You need to then put your faith in God's grace, period. And it's all revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, just in case we haven't kind of got the point, grace alone saves. That is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the neat thing again is is that Peter's the guy doing the speaking. So he's the, the, the first person that speaks. But then we see all the significant leaders. We see Paul speaking, Barnabas speaking, and James speaking. So all the big players, if you want to call them that, in the early church are all pulling together in this. Now, it is... True, if you've read the book of Galatians, that Peter, for a period of time, fell backwards. In Galatians, at a point later in his ministry, right now he's bold, he's accurate, he's orthodox. Then he became heterodox. He started to preach a secondary gospel. He started siding with the Pharisees. And so Paul had to come in in the book of Galatians and actually rebuke and correct Peter. So I would just say this, keep your guard up. You may be orthodox today and heterodox tomorrow. You may be on the one road, the straight road today and going in multiple directions tomorrow. So keep your theology pure. Might be pure now, 
But don't let your guard down. Don't let people convince you of falsehood. Be very careful. So Peter speaks, and then two other guys step in, Paul and Barnabas, then jump in and continue to testify to God's transformative grace among the Gentiles to prove that God is actually working in the Gentiles in the same way that he's working in the Jews. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they speak, and now James speaks. James was kind of the head of the church in Jerusalem. James then, having listened to this, draws the rightful conclusion. So he's the one that takes the reminders that Peter offered, the testimony that Paul and Barnabas offered, and sort of creedalizes it, puts it into a creed, makes a statement, makes a declaration, says, okay, in light of what we've heard, this is what we believe. Are we all in agreement? So lest his opponents try to separate the gospel of the Old Testament from the gospel of the New Testament, he he does something that's rather ingenious. In order to prove his point, he doesn't quote from Jesus. He quotes from the Old Covenant scriptures to show that there is actually one gospel throughout the word of God. And he reminds them that God's intention through all of time is to create one people for his own name. So look what it says in verse 13. After they finished speaking, Paul replied, brothers, Listen to me. Simeon, different spelling for Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. So now he quotes from Amos. Because the Pharisees affirm the Old Covenant scriptures. The Hebrew Bible, we could call it. So he goes back to Amos to prove his point, which is, which is very strategic. He says, quote, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. So that's very Jewish-centered. He's quoting from a, a prophecy from Amos that talks about God's restoration of Israel. The Jews are like, yeah, God's going to restore us. We're God's people. Amos says so. But he doesn't stop there. That, in other words, the purpose being the trajectory of God's restoration of Israel is what? That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and that all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. They're like, oh, we, we kind of have overlooked that one. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which is strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So you see what he does there? He proves that there's one gospel throughout the whole of the Bible. Now, there's different aspects to God's revelation of himself. Obviously, Amos didn't fully understand and know what Jesus would do and how he would accomplish it and all the circumstances of his coming. But he's drive home, driving home the point that God has always sought. His, his desire, his trajectory, his goal, his mission has always been to create one universal people for his honor and for his glory. And it's all based on grace. If you think it's based on works, you misread the Old Testament. 
So this is a wonderful reminder to the Jews, and it's a correction. Now, you might be looking at verse 20 and thinking to yourself, something seems a little contradictory here. I mean, he's hammering the nail deep. It's by grace. It's by grace. It's by grace. But then he's like, hey, by the way, there's three rules I want you to remind the Gentiles of. It's like, okay, what's going on here? Well, again, it's because the Bible's not anti-law. Certain laws and rules apply. There's certain rules that we still need to follow. So he's like, don't trouble them with circumcision, but I want to throw three rules out for them. And there's no contradiction here. The subject under discussion isn't, are there rules to live by? There certainly are rules to live by. The subject here is, are they required for salvation? And the answer to that is they most certainly are not. So we're not what we call antinomians. That means anti-law. We're not antinomian. We're not anti-law. We're not anarchists. We're not just, it's a free-for-all. It's a radical grace theology to the point that I can just live however I want. If I want to commit adultery, oh well, I'm going to heaven. If I want to lie, steal, cheat, fornicate, whatever. It may not be good. It may lose a few rewards in my crown, but that's, that's fine. No, that is false. There are rules to live by. Some of them are rules, as we'll see here, that help maintain relationships. They're just for the sake of being conscientious of others' weaknesses. And others of them are transcultural. So, what are these three rules in particular? Well, the first rule that they give is to abstain from things polluted by idols. Now, this is actually quite an insightful rule that James wants passed on to Gentile Christians because, historically, Gentiles had no problem sacrificing food to foreign gods and the way this would work, just to kind of make it real simple, is picture you go to the, let's say, the Aphrodite temple, and you're, you're dragging your, your, your sheep up to the Aphrodite uh, priests. And there was often temple prostitution involved in that circumstance, which kind of explains the sexual immorality reference. And they would cut the throat of the animal. The priest would take out maybe some of the innards. They'd burn it. And then they would take the meat, and they'd sell it out back at a reduced like cheap meat. Who doesn't like a beef's pretty expensive right now, from what I understand. Who doesn't like some cheap mutton or some cheap uh, beef? So they would sell it out the back of the temples at a reduced price. Well, you know how Christians are. They like a bargain. So they would go and they would look for the deals and they would, some of them would feel comfortable saying, well, I know it was offered into idols, but it's meat is meat. So I'm going to, I want a deal. So they would buy, buy it at reduced uh, prices. And for some, it wasn't a stumbling block. If you never came out of Aphrodite worship, you're going to go and see the sights and smell the smells and hear the sounds. And it's like, it's not my thing. It's never been my thing. There's no temptation there to return to Aphrodite worship. But then you come to church and you're like, hey, I got a great deal on mutton this week or beef. And maybe you're sharing that with someone who came out of Aphrodite worship and they want the deal too. So they go to the Aphrodite temple and all of a sudden they see the old sights and they smell the old smells and they hear the old sounds and they get sucked back into idol worship. And that's the issue that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 8. 
It's not that there's something innately wrong with eating meat offered unto idols, but that's that stumbling block theology. When we make decisions as Christians, we have to take into consideration the optics. How does it look? We don't want to walk around in eggshells because there's always someone that's going to be offended by everything. But are there decisions maybe I should make that I, I shouldn't make because it will negatively affect a weaker brother's faith? So because James understood that they wanted to move the Gentiles and the Jews into table fellowship, they wanted them to have good koinonia, good, good fellowship with one another, he suggests that they refrain from meat offered unto idols. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, I'll, I'll read the, the words of Paul here. It says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So this isn't like the pro-vegan verse. But it is the, if you're drinking, if you're eating, if you're saying certain things, if you're going certain places, whatever the application might be, and somehow that causes a weaker brother, a less mature brother to fall back into their old ways, you're responsible. So take into consideration how your decisions in life affect other people. Secondly, we have a prohibition against sexual immorality, which is less about optics and it's just more about God's moral law. Uh, of course, as I mentioned earlier in many of these it's a weird thing, but in many of these pagan religions, there was actually there were actually sex prostitutes. I don't know who came up with that idea, but there were sex prostitutes that would be part of the cult that people were part of. And many in the church came out of that, just like in our church. We're not naive to the fact that many people in the Christian church today come out of past marked by sexual immorality. And you've been saved by the grace of God. So this is a great thing. Keep your guard up. Keep your guard up and don't fall back into the old ways. Now, the, the one that's probably the most controversial is his prohibition against strangled animals and uh, the drinking of, of blood. Now, I'm going to suggest, and we're not going to split the church over it, you can have a different opinion on it, that this actually is a transcultural uh, principle for, for us to abide by even in the present. Some people have suggested, well, this is, this is just a... Um, you know, the Bible says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink is unto the Lord. We have the Peter's vision where the blanket came down and you could eat whatever meat you wanted. Well, it's true that you can eat whatever meat you wanted, but I want to show you from scripture that drinking blood is actually prohibited even for Christians today. And we're not talking about blood on a, on a cellular level. It's like, it's impossible. We, we all know it's impossible to extract every cell of blood from meat. But as much as possible, we should do our best when we're eating meat and we're allowed to eat any meat except for human meat. We're not cannibals. So there's a prohibition there, of course. To drain the blood out of an animal. So wh where is this taught in the Bible and why is it important? Well, in the word of God, throughout the entire word of God, we know that blood symbolizes life. In fact, it's part of our Eucharistic theology. It's part of our celebration of the Lord's Supper. We take the cup and we say, this is the blood of the new covenant. Why blood? Why not the pituitary gland? Why did God not use the pituitary gland to 
symbolize the sacrifice of Christ? Why not the lungs of Christ? Why not the liver of Christ? Why not the skin of Christ? His entire body was given for us, but why blood? Why is blood emphasized in the Eucharistic meal? Because blood from the beginning of time symbolizes life. And therefore, it's always to be treated with a measure of sacredness throughout all ages. So let me give you three passages from God's word that makes this point. So I'm, some of you might say, well, this, this, this is kind of sounding old covenant. No, it's, it's not old covenant. It's actually pre-old covenant. So keep in mind, Genesis is, is largely pre-old covenant, especially up to about chapter 11 or 12. So right back in Genesis 9, 6, this is before the Mosaic covenant. This is before the Abrahamic covenant. This is when God is laying down creational law. Out of all the laws he could give, there, there is a law given that pertains to blood. And it says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, it's blood. So you can eat the flesh, you can eat meat, but you're not supposed to eat the blood. Now, when the Mosaic law was given, this is codified in the Mosaic law in passages like Leviticus 17, 10 to 16. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I shall set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For, same argument as Genesis 9, 4, Different application, but same argument. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any person who sojourns among you eat blood. So what's he trying to guard here? He's trying to, he's trying to guard atonement theology. By not eating blood, they're guarding atonement theology. They're, he's, he's, he's reminding the people of God of their sin, of the fact that their lifeblood must be shed for their sin and setting them up for the propitiatory work of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood would be shed for our sin, which is foreshadowed, obviously, in the various animal sacrifices. So it's not just some <coughs> random rule out of nowhere. Why can't we eat blood? It's meant to guard our understanding of life, the sacredness of life, the penalty for sin, and to help us to guard our theology surrounding the death, ultimately the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we have this being forwarded into, into the new covenant in Acts 15, 20. It says we're to abstain from blood. Now people might say, oh, then I got to stop eating rare steaks. Well, if you know anything about butchery, there's no less or no more blood in a rare steak because there's in a well-done steak. You've just cooked the blood a little bit more or less. When you kill an animal, the idea here, again, we don't need to get down to a cellular level, but when you drain the blood of an animal, you slit its throat, and all butchers do this, and you drain out the blood. In some ancient pagan religions, they would collect the blood and they would literally drink the blood as part of their rituals, as part of their religions. And we don't do that. We feel uncomfortable with that. So it is, it is uh, a, and again, some would disagree with me on this, but I, I, think, I, I think I've got it going on here, frankly. 
I think I've understood the scripture correctly, that this is more than a matter of conscience where we are not to drink the blood of animals. When we kill an animal, we're to drain out its blood. We can eat any meat, but the lifeblood of every animal should be drained away and discarded. Now, why do we do that? To get saved? No, this is not about salvation. There's, this is not about salvation, but we do it in order to remind ourselves of our atonement theology. And in this respect, it's transcultural. We drain the blood out of the meat in order to show that we respect the life of the animals that we are about to eat and in order to help people to understand the preciousness of the blood as it applies to Jesus' blood shed for us. So it'd be kind of weird if you think about it to come to church and sing about the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the to, to celebrate the, the Eucharistic meal and to take the blood of the new covenant, to drink it. But then at the same time, in our general dietary choices, to disrespect blood and to, no give, to give no respect to the idea of the sanctity of life. And it, it, it kind of obscures or muddle, muddles and befuddles the imagery of the gospel. We know that Jesus' blood has expiating power. It has the capacity to actually expiate our sin, to judicially forgive us of our sins and our trespasses. And so we would do well in our dietary choices to guard that symbolism uh, as well in what we meet. Again, most of you have probably never even thought about this. I probably haven't thought about it a whole lot over the years, but I, I think it's an accurate reflection of what the scripture teaches. And so this explains why, on one hand, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James are all saying, hey, it's not by works, it's not by circumcision, it's not by the Mosaic Code, but there are still some rules we want to encourage you to abide by. So then trusted men are appointed to deliver this letter, this summary to the Gentile Christians. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, different, a different Judas, obviously, than the one that betrayed Christ, called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So here's their letter. Here's their epistle to the church. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our loving, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you about the same, will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from that which has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves in these things, you will do well. Not you will be saved, but you will do well. This is good advice. Farewell. 
So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Uh, Having gathered the congregations together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Think about that for a moment. What's the response to this theological correction? It's actually an emotional response. You know, there's nothing more discouraging than telling someone you got to work your way into heaven. It's not just bad theology. That, that, that sucks the life out of people. Because at the end of the day, when you're laying in your bed at night, the lights are out, no one's watching you, you know right well that you have failed time and time and time again. I know it and you know it. And so all these religions in the world that say to people, you know what, if you just measure up to our 1,000 rules, our 100 rules, however many there might be, you're going to be okay with God. You might fake it in public, but in your heart of hearts, you and I both know how often we fail. Even as Christians, we know how often we fail to put into practice what we preach and what we believe. I can preach hard and then fail to put into practice the very next day or very next hour. So in our own experience as Christians, we know that we cannot measure up to God's laws consistently. We try, we want to, but we we always fail. And so it's like the the biggest joke in history is that somehow you can work your way into heaven or nirvana or the, the afterlife. We all know we cannot measure up. We sin on a regular basis. And it's discouraging. You want to run people out of your church. Keep piling on the rules, pile on the rules. Tell them they can work their way into heaven. They're either just going to become masters at fakery, at hypocrisy, or they're just going to leave because they're discouraged. And there's at least a couple references in their letter to how these people were unsettled in their hearts. They were discouraged because of a grace plus gospel. But when they receive a grace alone gospel, it says they rejoice because of its encouragement. It wasn't like, oh, we can do whatever we want. Oh, there's still things we need to take into consideration. But a grace alone gospel is the greatest encouragement, the most wonderful message a person can ever receive. But there's something in the human heart that resists it. How many times... Have we preached the gospel to people? I remember years ago, I will never forget this. Preaching the gospel to a lost person. It was over the course of multiple conversations. And I was explaining the gospel and the the work of Christ. And it went on and on and on and on. And he was asking great questions. And he was repeating back to me what I said. I'm like, he gets it. He's going to get saved. He's so close to the kingdom. And then at the end of it all, he's like, you know what? Maybe I'm just going to become a Buddhist because that's like the best of all worlds. It was, it was like a shocking statement for me because I thought he was so close, but something in him still resisted it. It's like, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. It can't, it can't just be trusting in Christ alone for my salvation. I got to do something, buy into some philosophy, get circumcised obey some series of laws. And many people reject it because it seems too good to be true, but brothers and sisters, it's true. And you can stake your life on it. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, super encouraging. Grace, a grace alone gospel, not only encourages you, but guess who gets 100% of the glory for it? God, because you can't take the credit. Well, here's how it ends. 
And Judas and Silas, who were among the prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. For a period of time, uninhibited, which is a beautiful thing. And so for a season, the true gospel is maintained. There would be other threats that would arise, and they had to deal with those as well. And that's been the pattern for 2,000 years. I just want to encourage you, make sure you understand and know and can articulate the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And also make sure that you sniff out, you see, you hear error as soon as it comes at you and that you correct it quickly. Defend the gospel, clarify the gospel. It matters eternally. It matters. It's worth fighting for because the consequences literally are life or death. So be encouraged by these words. 